Hello everyone and welcome to Celebrating Cinema, a podcast striving to rebuild our beloved community, creating a more inclusive and shared experience. If you haven't already, check out our conversation with Miriam Gutman and make sure to subscribe. And on the eve of the Oscars, we thought it'd be right to discuss the purpose and the relevance of the Oscars. So we thought none other than Hugo, our film critic, could kick us off. Thank you, Elliot. I don't know about you, but I am really looking forward to April the 26th, the date when the 193rd award ceremony of the Academy of Motion Pictures and Sciences will be held. Although I'm probably looking forward to it for another reason than you might think. You could say I've got the Oscar fever, which means a lot to those out there already initiated in maybe the most important group of cinephiles, the junior movie buffs. Since 2013, Tim Heidecker and Greg Turkington, comedians that take on the role of very knowledgeable film buffs, and knowledgeable is in quotation marks here by the way, have streamed their own Oscar special show live and in tandem with the Oscars. These shows, all part of the ever-growing On Cinema at the Cinema cinematic universe, are comedy gold. Two self-proclaimed critics attempt a Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel-style television show about all things movies and cinema, but fail horribly and rather clash with each other over the most basic of things. Whether Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home is set in San Francisco or not, whether Mission Impossible or James Bond is the best spy movie franchise out there, or whether making music and then hanging out with your buddies is more important than engaging with film and collecting them on VHS in a frantically labeled but also kinda chaotic archival system. In essence, the On Cinema at the Cinema series, all free to watch on YouTube, reveals the absurd nature of extensively engaging with the film industry at large. Which makes it very enjoyable for me, a film critic who also sometimes thinks in movies first, life second. In a way, it's also a perfect mirror for institutions like the Academy, that behind their professional image, seem to be a deeply ineffectual and low-key amateuristic platform to truly reflect what film culture is about. The Oscars are too white, too male-centric, too much catered towards the industry itself and too unfair in giving the statuettes to the people that seem more deserving of it. And yet, we hold the ceremony and its prizes in regard as one of the most important indications of the quality of a specific movie, maker, writer, performer, etc. I think the moment where Warren Beatty accidentally gave the Oscar for Best Film to La La Land instead of Moonlight came across as a kind of mask-off moment for many, giving an insight into how broken this archaic institution seems to be. But of course, something as prestigious as the Oscars has to constantly reinvent itself to remain just progressive and appealing enough to maintain and remain a firm grip on the cultural landscape. A very cynical read of the sweeping win of Bon Joon-ho's Parasite could be that the film had to win in order for the Oscars to hand on to some of their relevance. In this pandemic year, in which the biggest films have mostly been indefinitely postponed or dumped onto our various VOD platforms, the Oscars were faced with another challenge. To remain the biggest and the best, even though the eligible films don't necessarily fit the mold of what an Oscar-winning movie might look like in the 21st century. There's much to reflect on here, and there are some interesting titles out there 
that are vying for the most important awards of this year. If you've come for this kind of detailed award speculation, you've gone to the wrong place. In this episode, we'd rather take the Oscars as a cue to talk about the inherent absurdities of the film industry that reveals themselves when you take a peek behind the curtain. We'll be doing that with the help of a daft little film that got released in 2013 and didn't really get a hold of the cultural imagination around that time, but has proven to be almost prophetic in its highly critical stance towards the film industry. I'm talking about The Congress, a hybrid feature animation film by Ari Folman, who rose to critical esteem with his animation slash documentary hybrid Waltz with Bashir about the 1982 Lebanon Noir. On the back of the success of that film, Fulman basically decided to bury his career by making a batshit insane adaptation of a Stanislav Lem novel called The Futurological Congress, about a riot in a Hilton Congress hotel that gets suppressed by psychedelic drugs spread through the drinking water. Fulman combines that psychedelic and satirical narrative with a skating critique of the film industry in which an actress called Robin Wright, obviously played by Robin Wright, is enticed to digitize her body, her voice, her movement and her gestures, so she'll never have to act another role in her life again. Her CGI counterpart will do the acting for her, and in exchange she will check the royalties of her pictures for the rest of her life. When in the second half of the film, the by now permanently out of work Robin Wright checks into a hotel where Stanislav Lem's Congress takes place, the film takes a radical left turn and becomes an aesthetic and reality-bending animation film in which all of culture at large seems to coexist within the same realm. It's a lot to handle and the film doesn't really give you a map of how to navigate its chaotic narrative, which is exactly why we're taking it here as a starting point to talk about the film industry, ownership of images, culture as competition and our own role in the complex spider's web of culture and criticism. And all of that can easily bring us back to the Oscars and the upcoming ceremony. I'm joined, as always, by... Kiriko, I'm a journalist and filmmaker. And I'm Tom, I'm the programmer of Lab 111 Cinema in Amsterdam. And on maybe a light note, I'd like to ask to you first what the Oscars mean for you. Very little, man. <laughs> Sorry, to, and that's a wrap. <laughs> Sorry to say, yeah, I think I'm I'm one of those pretentious people who doesn't like to watch the Oscars because I try to watch as little American cinema as I can or try to make a personal statement with that. But what I do like about the Oscars is that all the highlights of the Oscars always seem to be receiving with one hand and then slapping the Oscars back in the face with the other or something. So I like. I love how it hates itself in some way or another. But I think, Tom, you could maybe give a few more loving words to the ceremony. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit on the other side of the spectrum. I do love American cinema, and I do see both the absurdity of the Oscars and American cinema as a whole. But I remember when I was really young, I looked forward to the Oscars and to looking up the nominations. Maybe it also has to do with the fact that I'm a big list buff what you should watch or maybe mm -hmm. shouldn't watch yeah. or something things along those lines. So yeah, I did look forward to the Oscars, although I must say that over the course of the past, let's say, 15 years or something, also due to myself becoming more 
politically educated, I guess, you start seeing how, as you say, Kiriko, the Oscars have this constant sort of problem that they try to be very representative of what's going on in society, but the industry doesn't seem to be able to catch up. So they make these weird sort of choices where they give the Oscar to Driving Miss Daisy or uh, to Green Book, where it, it starts to feel very trivial how they judge films on their own merit and also how they judge them within a far bigger scheme of how look at societal issues and how those come back in film. Yeah, this is what what I was going at, at this idea that the Oscars need to constantly reinvent themselves. But I like your phrasing of it, Kirgo. It's like the Oscars constantly need to punish themselves and the film industry for all of their faults so that they can signal that they are learning and doing better and changing on you all the time, right? You can't pin down the Oscars for what they are because they will always come back in a slightly different way and everything will be a little bit better, which is makes it a very frustrating and kind of strange, masochistic kind of <laughs> institute. But I do feel that in that sense, it is also a very interesting, almost like a text to study and to analyze and then to kind of get an assessment of how the cultural industry in itself works because all of these processes that seem very not transparent, right? How does our culture shift along with societal developments and with our political consciousness? The Oscars kind of externalize all of that and they do it in a very awkward and strange way, but they do at least try to do that, yeah, yeah, which is yeah. why it is always kind of funny. But I feel like I'm also a bit more on Kiriko's side here that also, especially what I said, since on cinema at the cinema exists, I have no need at watching the Oscars live when I also have that that reflects on the Oscars but then also makes it so much more strange that it becomes more realistic in a sense for me. But maybe you could regard the Oscars in itself as the reality TV show of what media and cinema <laughs> looks like in the States today. And then the on cinema at the cinema is kind of like the documentary version where you have the commentary <laughs> of the people who actually know how to put things in perspective uh, when it comes to the movie climate well, in the it, States It's very today. much accidental or lucid documentary here because <laughs> it's more that in essence or in philosophy, maybe they touch upon the reality of the film industry, but the series itself is highly, highly fictional. But I do think you're right in the sense, I think also the most interesting parts about the Oscar, of course, are the most performative aspects, right? Where... I mean, we're dealing with an industry and a business of performers, of actors and actresses and screenwriters and directors. So yeah, yeah, they yeah. know how to stage a story. And suddenly you have one of the most prominent stages in the world still so far where people can shape their own narratives vis-a-vis -vis the film industry and culture at large, which is an interesting tension. And there's been some moments in history that, has, you know, given us some very interesting insights in how that dynamic can play out. I would actually like to take a, a step further, and I have to invoke my inner Slavoj Zizek here, which is, the uh, Oscars are idiotically. I mean, my... <laughs> Sorry about that. That was, so good. that was really good. <laughs> I'm sweating profusely now. 
uh, and so on and so on. Um, anyway. <laughs> I already am eating from the trash can all the time. The name of this trash can is ideology. I do want to stress my interest in the Oscars is very much due to the fact that I always had the feeling that it's a great and terrible sort of representation of the American dream and of America itself. And as you mentioned, it's about pomp and circumstance, acting, playing out. Uh, the, the, the industry itself, of course, is about spiel. Yeah. But the Oscars itself sort of show you that American dream thing. You can make it. You can go there. But in the end, it's just a facade. It's a commercial of culture, which isn't true. It isn't real. It's it yeah. feels like this very sort of superficial billboard for an industry, but behind it, it there's not a lot going on. It it's funny because before we were recording, we were talking a little bit about you know what might origin story of the Oscars be and. It's not an entirely uh, educated uh, read of it because I'm not. I haven't read up everything about the Oscars, but I mean they started to come around at the end of the 1920s, beginning 1930s, I guess, which is a time in which Hollywood needed to legitimize itself because before that the American film industry was mostly in the East Coast in New York, and then they all moved to California where it was sunny and labor was cheap and you could do outdoor shooting and you didn't need a studio and also it was a place where the whole nouveau riche of america was hanging out and doing crazy stuff and money was flowing and there were crazy parties and stuff and all of those things combined i mean hollywood was a very strange place from the get-go when it became the tinsel town right where dreams got made and movie magic was happening and I think the Oscars were kind of maybe a very big, ambitious bid also to establish a legitimate narrative for the film industry as this big, important cultural force. So maybe this struggle, right, to always make yourself legitimate has been in there from the get-go. And we're now dealing with this industry that is not even, in that sense, 100 years old, that has still the same struggle. How do we legitimize ourselves how do we stay important how do we stay culturally relevant and i'm not sure what you think of what i said about this kind of very cynical take about the oscar win for parasite and the oscar goes to parasite <laughs> Which is something that I'm super excited about, obviously, in many ways, because it broke with a lot of the established rules, right? That non-English, non-American film can make it that far in that race. But I think it had to happen, otherwise the Oscars would be cake, it would be done. Well, it, it ties into maybe a rather huge conversation we're not going to have right now, but there is a very interesting sort of tendency to, especially in America, to pick up societal issues or racial issues or emancipatory issues and sort of thrust them into commercial film, Wonder Woman, Black Panther, things like those, which are in essence great vehicles for bringing those issues to the masses. But from a very cynical standpoint, you could ask the question, are they now sort of capitalizing on 
an issue, which is the same thing that happens with the Oscars, of course. Yes, and I guess it's like, this is also what I was thinking, that the Oscars are the most interesting when the script breaks, right? Because this is all, in a sense, highly predictable. We have mm -hmm. all of these well-meaning, liberal Hollywood people that want to change the world through the power of cinema. And maybe in a very, very small sense, they do. But I mean, you'd have to be very optimistic to give them that leeway. But the most important thing, there's like genuine radical moments in Oscar history. And Tom, I think you've delved a bit into the history of the award ceremony and some <laughs> he's actually grabbing a, it's a, long a card list. cardboard <laughs> list of the man of the list. Yeah, the list buff. <laughs> yeah, but I mean there's very important moments in which the Oscars as a facade broke down on itself and it shows something that is maybe more earnest than what the Oscars can come up with themselves. Okay. Right? So I compiled a list. A very it's a very scattershot list of various moments which were interesting and broke that script as you say. So you have Halle Berry's acceptance speech, actually, when she won in 2002 for Monsters Ball. She was the first African-American actress to win that award. This moment is so much bigger than me. This moment is for Dorothy Dandridge, Lena Horne, Diane Carroll. It's for the women that stand beside me. Jada Pinkett, Angela Bassett, Vivica Fox, and it's for every nameless, faceless woman of color that now has a chance because his door tonight has been opened. Joaquin Phoenix. You guys mentioned that one. I yeah, thought that well, was a that was freaking so fascinating moment because when you mentioned it before we started recording, I, I could remember. Yeah, what I liked about that speech so much is in it's just such a contradiction with uh, everything that a speech at the oscars should be so it wasn't organized and it seemed like such a mess which i think all actors who win an oscar try to do and act as if they haven't prepared shit Bumbling with the paper oh no i'm yeah. so chaotic oh i don't even know where to start but i want to thank my mom yeah 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 exactly <laughs> but and and of course they all do that but somehow i just really emphasize with with Joaquin phoenix and and he just seemed really really genuine and he really wanted to get that message across i've been thinking a lot about some of the distressing issues that we are facing collectively and I think at times we feel or we're made to feel that we champion different causes. But for me, I see commonality. I think whether we're talking about gender inequality or racism or queer rights or indigenous rights or animal rights, we're talking about the fight against injustice. We're talking about the fight against the belief that one nation, one people, one race, one gender, or one species has the right to dominate, control, and use and exploit another with impunity. He really wants to get that message across. That's a great speech about compassion, really. Yeah. But it's funny because you, you interpret it as compassion and a plea against cancel culture, and I interpreted it as saying you are all sitting there kind of, you know, doing your silly award ceremony while the world is burning and we're all still 
consuming animals, polluting the planet, making everything worse for everything that comes after us. And you're, we're all just doing this. I felt for me it was much more lucid awareness of him. Like all of this is so freaking corrupt. Mm -hmm. And I am standing here and I'm finally able to say it. And he can't believe that he's a able to say it. And he, he can and he does. And then he's like, whoa, <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just like this stream of consciousness. Yeah. But I feel like it's very much in a sense, political and kind of maybe prophetic because, because he kind of delivers everything so abstractly. I think it's not like it's a difficult text is, is performers per se, but I do think that the point has still get, has to come across yet. I don't think people are there yet. Right accepting that we are in crisis mode or something and it seems that he was relaying that at least yeah. to me yeah but then question is would there be a moment or has there been a moment in the oscars either with a, a win like a prize or uh, with a speech that that actually has made a change that we can pinpoint or point out well i mean i'm kind of my eyes look into Tom because he has the list but I do want to add that I think that the idea of establishing change to culture is a very idealistic notion in its own right even though I am a vocal enthusiast of culture and an appreciator of it I am increasingly doubting if it will ever solicit a radical change in itself Maybe, maybe Tom, you can tell us what you consider the biggest off-script moment in the Oscars were to be. I'm thinking Marlon Brando. Yeah. Oh, you want to talk about Marlon Brando or his absence? Yeah, when he when he won for The Godfather, he decided to boycott the Oscars, and of course, actually, the relationship between Brando and Phoenix is there, right? I mean, yeah. they were both parts of the system made by the system, and eventually completely wanted to get out of the system Yeah, due to various circumstances. I mean, if you look at Brando's life, it's, it, it's complete tragedy. But, but when he won for The Godfather, he sent a Native American to pick up his Oscar, which he was called Shasheen Littlefeather. I'm representing Marlon Brando this evening, and he has asked me to tell you in a very long speech, which I cannot share with you presently, because of time, but I will be glad to share with the press afterwards that he very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry, excuse me, I think it's very powerful because she comes to collect the award. She makes a speech on behalf of Marilyn Brando, but then is mostly in that speech. I mean, Marlon Brando is only in his absence accepting it, but he gives the total podium for her to describe the plight of the Native American situation at that moment in 1973. And I, if I remember it properly, she just basically gets booed by the whole audience. Or there's just like this shock of disappointment and... Yeah, it's just the classic where the orchestra starts. Yes, oh, and she gets yeah, played so out tragic. with the music. Which is always a very funny moment because then you know that it is either 
somebody who's very bad at accepting the speech and it's just crap. You know, there's people that are like, oh, I'd like to thank my mom and my accountant and my nephew's sister. But then... And Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> and, and Harvey Weinstein. Weinstein, God. I mean, yeah. We'll talk exactly. about him. <laughs> um, but it's always when it becomes too political, right? That's the moment where the orchestra also always starts playing. It never happens when it's somebody or something or some movie that fits within the academy industry. Or so when it's something that, especially, of course, movies that are about film. It's always, always weird these people talking about like, well, it's a film about film. So it will be interesting for the Academy. If you look at Mank, for instance, this year, I mean, I think no. we all agree that doing the dishes while seeing them on Netflix was absolutely fine. But It made the dishes worse, I'm, though. I'm sorry, David Fincher. Um, it made the dishes worse. <laughs> that was so mean. Oh. Those films always seem to pop up and the orchestra never starts early with those, you know? Yeah. If you're in those movies, you can have this long rambling speech for thanking everybody from your mother to your father to uh, uh, referencing yourself saying, all right, all right, all right. I, I must say, I think that's the, the speech I hate the most was Matthew McConaughey winning his Oscar and it being this sort of vaguely spiritual but spirituality completely only focused on him so at that point it was looking at the facade of a guy being a facade of the american dream i mean my mind was blown there Ugh. so you see every day every week every month and every year of my life my hero's always 10 years away i'm never gonna be my hero I'm not gonna attain that, I know I'm not. And that's just fine with me because that keeps me with somebody to keep on chasing. So to any of us, whatever those things are, whatever it is we look up to, whatever it is we look forward to and whoever it is we're chasing, to that I say amen. To that I say all right, all right, all right. Anyway, um, shall we move on to another strange moment? Yes. Yes. All right. Yeah. Shall we do a fun one? Yes. I love the moment when Jennifer Lawrence had won her Oscar for Silver Linings Playbook. She was sitting backstage being interviewed by a journalist and Jack Nicholson passes by. Oh, yeah. And uh, he just taps her on the shoulder and he says to her like, uh, yeah, I want you, you were great in the film. I just want to say that. And uh, yeah, you remind me of a girl I used to date. And then he, he walks off and she's just, oh my God, it's the man Jack himself, Nicholson. Jack Nicholson. <laughs> <laughs> Is he still here? I'll be waiting. Oh my God! <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, what are you going to remember about tonight? I think it is. <laughs> Had you met him before? No. And she turns around and says to Jack Nicholson, "Can I be the new girlfriend?" And Nicholson moves off, comes back, and says, "I'll think about it." <laughs> God. It's a Player fun move. moment. That's a baller it, move. But yeah. again, it shows you the industry in a bubble, yeah. right? We can never be part of that. No, but it's nice. Like the the playful aspect of that is also why Jennifer Lawrence might be, in a sense, a force for good because she knows how to move along with the industry lines, but do it in a way that's fun and wink, wink, which can also, you know, solicit a lot of cynical takes. But it's fun. Yeah, I I kind of like it. Yeah, but it also goes along the lines of 
of the Oscars being a platform in which it constantly ridicules itself, which I think the persona of Jennifer Lawrence is also very conscious of doing. Yeah. What was the cringy moment where they all took the pizza selfie? Was that the Oscars? Yeah, that was oh, that year. Oh, God. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah, it was yeah. generous. Yeah, yeah. That is that, ah, yeah. Mo- that, yeah, that, was that, that feel year. condensed in one photo, right? Like, hey, look at us. Yeah. Like, you know, being very spontaneous. Fun and games. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What would be the most facade moment then? The most facade moment? Oh, uh, shall I have a look here? Gwyneth Paltrow. Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh, but of course. <laughs> or maybe. Oh, Elliot, you're being such a great leader of this conversation. What about Gwyneth Paltrow? Yeah, okay. What about Gwyneth Paltrow? Where to start? She won the Oscar in 1999 for Shakespeare in Love. I would like to thank Harvey Weinstein and everybody at Miramax Films for their undying support of me. I would like to, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be in this auditorium, let alone up here. Remember that I was great there. classic of a film? I saw that film at English class. <laughs> 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 you should have been doing the dishes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, but seriously, it's 1999, right? It's the y- 1999 yeah. considered by many the best cinema year Mm-mm. in history. Just round off quickly the films that were made that year. Oh boy, it's from Magnolia to The Matrix, and that's just the M. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it's this year where lobbying for Oscars had come to a climax. Yeah, this is also the year, of course, where the whole indie filmmaking genre of American cinema gets hyper-commercial. Because you had, at the end of the 80s, you had Sex, Lies and Videotapes, the Mm. Steven Soderbergh film, which did really, really well at Sundance and became this huge deal, right? And then you had, yeah, Myromax, of course. Myromax, yeah. Yeah, don't spoil it yet. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but yeah, the 90s were an interesting moment where that whole like legitimate anti-establishment independent filmmaking got totally cannibalized actually by the industry in a sense. Yeah. And then it's 1999. 1999, but it what what you're of course mentioning is that it is the if you look at the company that did that the most, it's of course Miramax. Yeah. And Miramax as um Selma Hayek called him the monster Harvey Weinstein, or as Meryl Streep called him... God, Harvey Weinstein. ...is the reason Beltra won in 1999. Weinstein had this incredible campaign where he showed films at retirement homes, because at that time the academy was incredibly old, so you had these sort of living fossils who also had to vote, so he was screening... Films at retirement homes. And he was actually throwing parties, which was not allowed. You could not throw a party and have a dinner for Academy voters. He was just like, fuck that. And apart from that, he introduced the smear campaign. So other films were smeared in newspapers and on TV, etc. So that voters would sort of veer towards Meryl Meryl Streep. Gwyneth (laughs) Beltrow. Well... We've been veering towards Meryl Streep enough. Uh, I mean, 21 nominations is enough, I guess. Harvey Weinstein, Bob Weinstein, God bless him. Harvey Weinstein, who believed in us and made this movie. Harvey and Bob Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein. Thank you, Harvey Weinstein. Especially Harvey. I want to thank Harvey and Bob Weinstein. Thank Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein. Harvey and Bob Weinstein. 
Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein. Harvey and Bob. And Harvey and Bob Weinstein. I want to thank the Mishpuka Weinstein. They do seem to still be relevant for that industry itself. There's still this proclivity to really want to sort of, you want to have it because it propels your career forward. You mean the Oscars? The Oscars, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I mean, well, it's. But does that make any sense? Well, right? yeah, that's the whole thing that we're kind of deconstructing here, at least from a narrative st- standpoint, right? The Oscars don't really mean what to us what they mean to the industry itself mm-hmm. the funny thing about the industry is that that whole talk that we're giving about facade this breaking the script that doesn't really matter in the end if an oscar just adds plain numbers to your banking account mm-hmm. if you are a producer or a publicity firm or you know a sales agent or whatever mm-hmm. because Let's be frank. I, for instance, let's take Green Book. You know, it's a film that I didn't really have an interest in seeing. And then the Oscars were playing on my TV and on cinema at the cinema. Oscar special was playing on my other screen. And I was watching that, looking at both of the things with both eyes. And I see Green Book win. And I'm like, well, so now I might have to check it out to see what it is about. And the next day... It was playing here in Amsterdam and I went to see Green Book, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it doesn't really matter who engages with the Oscars for what reason. It works. It gets butts in the seat. When you win an Oscar, people are going to come. Which is what why the win for Parasite was great news in a sense. Because a lot of people were blown away by this film. Got maybe introduced to South Korean cinema are now looking up older Bong Joon-ho films, are looking at films like The Handmaiden, right? It's like, it's a good gateway in a sense, and it, it is a great marketing tool, and it will remain to be that unless the whole institute gets devalued, but the Oscars are kind of like Teflon, so I don't see that happening quite soon. His speech was a very good commercial for subtitles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was like, sure. well, you know, if those couple of inches of text in your screen are such a big threshold for you to engage with something as broad cinema and culture (laughs) well maybe that's on you and yeah it is i mean that's great and uh, so there's happy good news stories about it there's also some very awful obvious kind of industry planted winners and at the bottom line it doesn't really matter because all of them are gonna bank their checks and that's what the Oscars are, in a sense, about, if we're going to see it from that perspective, right? Can I do my uh, favorite Oscar moment? Yes, of course. Maybe I can just do this speech. Mm. Oh, wow. Just read wow. it out, and then we leave it there, and we move on to the next subject. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Wait, wait we have to tell the orchestra not to play. This is the speech by Leo Carra, which he didn't go into the Oscars. Uh, someone else read it out for him. When he won the award for best foreign language film for holy motors it goes like this it's 2012 right i guess so yeah Yeah. hello i'm leo cara director of foreign language films (laughs) (laughs) i've been making foreign language films my whole life foreign language films are made all over the world of course except in america in america they only make non-foreign language films (laughs) (laughs) foreign language films are very hard to make obviously 
because you have to invent a foreign language instead of <laughs> the usual language. <laughs> I love this guy. Oh. But the truth is, cinema is a foreign language. A language created for those who need to travel to the other side of life. Good night. I love that so much. Yeah. It's so good. It's yeah. so good. And yeah, I mean, it it touches upon so many things, right? Also about American exceptionalism that they have this bubble that they blew up and is becoming so and so big that it's almost impossible to look outside of that when you're within it, which is kind of what we were talking about of how to break out of it, right? Some people manage to put some cracks in it, but... I love that somebody like Leo comes along and just completely breaks it down from the outside. Also not being there physically himself exactly. adds to the point. And it's so charming. It's so charming. And he doesn't really cross the line because he's only really stating what is, what is happening and what the situation yeah. is. And then I only realized that last year was the first year that they changed the title of yeah. the award to... Um, Best international feature film. Yeah. Which is insane. I mean, come on. I mean, yeah. So it goes to show that the f the film industry in itself is very slow to adapt, in a sense, to things that might be common sense for us, but from within, for the longest time, are impossible to conceive. And we've been talking a bit about, you know, problematic aspects of the Oscars, emancipatory aspects of the Oscars that still somehow are part of course about of Oscar mythology also making it film history in the process giving it basically back all of those kind of radical statements to the Oscars as this kind of legitimizing project in many ways I mean I'm making this very strange transition to the film that we chose to discuss today <laughs> in many ways well, it was a very strange film I mean, yeah, it was a very strange film. Yeah, it was a very strange film. It does reflect in an interesting way on the Congress, this Ari Fulman film that is also, I feel like, I mean, talking about the foreign language aspect, right? Ari Fulman being one of cinema's darlings after having made Waltz with Bashir, which is still one of the most incredible hybrid documentaries I have seen. It's an incredible animation film, but mostly it's a deeply humanistic perspective on war and conflict and how to you know parse with your traumas and deal with that this was one of the most promising <laughs> foreign language directors international feature film makers who decided to basically put everything on the line partially also out of fr frustration with this very same film industry when he made the congress a film that kind of shows in many ways how deeply cynical and deeply resistance to any like positive change the film industry can be how economic incentives will always go first before any significant cultural change right so i'm i mean i suggested the film to you guys and i'm wondering mostly what did you think of it and where are we gonna kick off and talk about it because there's many 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 aspects to talk about i mean the second half is absolutely bonkers and has many, many things to take away from. But the first half, I think, is maybe the most literal cinema or art world or culture industry critique there is, right? I thought it was batshit crazy. In a good way, though. 
I had the feeling it was a deeply flawed film that had so many interesting things to tell that it didn't really know how to sort of wrap them up in a good old bundle of joy. It, as you say, like the first of the film is you have this industry mogul played by uh, Danny Houston, who is one-on-one Harvey Weinstein, who just sees her as a commodity to to digitalize and then sell and sell and sell and have her play roles while she's not even really part of that process anymore. So yeah, especially the first part I thought was deeply cynical about the film industry. And in Loki, in a way, prophetic, because around the time that film got made, Bowman, of course, being very knowledgeable of a lot of animation technology for Waltz with Bashir, which has some incredible animation techniques behind it, at this moment, many of the film performances that we're looking at are very much touched and upon and brushed up by CGI technology, by full body scans, motion capture technology. I mean, the Irishman, you know, comes from the same vein as the narrative where the Congress comes from, that you can fully scan somebody in, take ownership of their images, and then just keep them alive forever for instance there's a film coming up and i'm quite certain it will never get made but the headline in itself was already funny enough that they contracted james dean to star in a vietnam war movie because the estate of james dean allowed his likeness to be digitized forever and sold his rights to be in a film to this producer because the producer said james dean is the most fitting role for this story set in the Vietnam War, a war that James Dean himself never experienced in real life because he passed away before the Vietnam War (laughs) started. But he is the most fitting actor to tell this story. So with his digital likeness, they can do that. And Robin Wright, you know, working with this film is in a sense incredible because it, it, it is what is happening. And... I think that the Oscars also have to reckon with that in a sense that we're going to get those performances in the future that are not physically there or something. So how do you value culture like that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was quite surprised. I loved the film. It was the first time I saw it. And when I looked it up online, it had, I think, almost exclusively bad reviews. about the whole idea that can't follow the story and that it's um, messy and whatnot. But that's, I think, also the whole thing of trying to recreate a psychedelic trip where it shouldn't be comprehensible and understanding. And, I mean, in the end, every aspect of the film tells a larger story, which, I don't know, I'm I'm a, a, a fan of films that are too difficult to understand and that you can keep thinking about them forever. Yeah, I was more also generally in love with the second half of the film where <laughs> we just went in this. Yeah, it really the... takes off there. Yeah, but it's... it's Also with the relationship she has with the animator with the... played by John Hamm. Yeah, Which is this so weird uh, thing that, of course, Hugo, you want to talk about fandom in some yeah, way in sure, the future. Yes. I mean, and that also ties into that because he was so in love with her as an actress, but he was involved with her digitization process and CGIing her new roles and stuff like that. But the whole digitization story part of the film is, I think, also about the whole idea of, of how we idealize actors and actresses and 
how we want to become them. I used to be an actress, and then I was a pile of computer code. And now, as of tomorrow, you're going to be able to drink me. You can become me by drinking a milkshake. Wake up, people. Wake up. How eventually in the film, everybody also becomes an actor or an actress because that is what they then can be, no? Yeah. I mean, yeah. in that sense, the film is also kind of prophetic in the way that, you know, social media has given us the means to become our own actors and actresses yeah, in our yeah, own yeah. lives. And we touched upon this with our Truman Show episode, of course. People will also become their role, right? If you look at my list of moments, I figure the beef that Joan Crawford and Betty Davis had back in the day, which was sort of epitomized by whatever happened to Baby Jane, which is the movie where they fight all the time. Could you just give us some info on the beef they had? Hollywood always told viewers that they had an incredible beef. Because there can only be one actress. There can be only one actress. And they were very different people. Betty Davis were very outspoken, very, very much old-school feminist. And Joan Crawford was this beautiful, stately lady. So the industry made this conflict where these two heads sort of butted. But it never happened. And when Anne Bancroft won her Oscar for Best Actress, she sent Joan Crawford to pick it up. But she won from Betty Davis. So what does that mean? That must mean that actually she sent Joan Crawford as a stab underwater, I guess. Never really going on. But this is what the industry likes to do. And eventually, these players start to become the role that was given to them. Yeah, this is what I was thinking about, right? In relationship to the Congress where, you know, Robin Wright and her digitized self becomes almost more Robin Wright than she is herself. There's this very also cynical take of actors and actresses that they are just, in a sense... You know, they're just fleshy puppets of the director, right? They have no agency. They have no creativity. In a sense, they only have a pretty face and they have it. You know, they have a natural screen presence. They click in front of the camera. So in that sense, taking the history of the Oscars as this kind of, you know, starting point, you can see that logical continuation and maybe even philosophical endpoint in the Congress, right? Where it doesn't even matter what Robin Wright herself does. It's only her looks, her appearance, her motion, her gestures that make her performance. But her authorship is deleted in the Congress and it's maybe for the better for everybody in the film industry. You were always the puppet. All of them, the producers, the directors, they told you what to do. They told you how to behave, how to act, how to smile, how to love. And they gave you the subtext for every fucking crappy line they churned out. And when you hit 35, they told you how to look young. Because if you didn't do what they wanted you to do, shave off a couple of years from that beautiful face of yours, you would cease to exist, for Christ's sake. So what's the difference? And this is where we've been talking about, you know, that the interesting moments where the Oscars also break is also because they break because people seem to be more than just the role that they have to perform within the collective of the film industry, right? Suddenly, Joaquin Phoenix is not Joker or is not part of the DC extended cinematic universe. <laughs> Suddenly, 
Joaquin Phoenix is a highly concerned entity in the world who is questioning our relationship vis-a-vis life itself, right? Suddenly, Marlon Brando is not the godfather, but he is a political activist that chooses, which is something that I think many people at this moment can also learn from, chooses to not take his podium and give it to somebody who is at that moment in dire need of having such a stage, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And those are the things that can shake up this culture. And those are the moments, I think, where it does make me, in a sense, optimistic that it can amount to something. The funny thing is that the Congress shows us that the film industry is, in a sense, frantically working to take that away, that agency. They are trying to wrestle it out of the hands of the actual people that are so creative that movie magic gets made and gives it all to CGI animators with weird fetishistic appraisals of looks but don't want to engage with the messy reality of the mind, of the brain, of somebody's political stance, somebody's morals, somebody's ethics. And then in the second half of the film, what I really like about it is that it shows what happens when culture goes awry, when it goes rampant and out of control and you can't contain it. And people hate the film because it's not able to be contained. You can't contain the Congress. In that rampant phase, it shows what culture can truly be, right? Too much to handle, which is what it should always be Mm -hmm. in a sense. This is, I think, the defining tension of the Oscars. This is the moment where the Oscars try to crack down the most, where the orchestra comes playing in. They want to contain all of that. Pre-Tugo, you rounded that up all together. I think from that break of script, I'm going to implement the vicious cycle and we hear from one of our listeners who has a question about lists. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Elliot, the director of the Oscars. (laughs) (laughs) So I think Camille was kind enough to voice in a question. And if we take a listen to that. Hello, Lab Rat Pack. Congratulations on your podcast. I um, enjoyed listening to your first episode. And I'd like to thank you and have a question for you. For the past five years, I've been catching up on my classics and Lab 111 enabled me to see many of them on a large screen. Uh, Thanks for this. And I hope you will keep showing titles that I don't get to see in other theaters. But here's the thing. I rarely know anything about these films, only that they appear on certain lists or because they have won Oscars, which makes them, you know, well, critically acclaimed, I guess. Which means that uh, Lab 1 acts like a big, dark slot machine uh, to me. It can usually disappoint. Uh, For example, I saw Il Conformista a few years ago, didn't care much for it, but it can also hit the jackpot which was the case with There Will Be Blood, Cool Hand Luke, and The Grave of the Fireflies. So here is my question. Why is it such a thrill to trust the opinions of others and go blind all in for two hours on a film you don't even know? Don't look at me, Elliot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it'd be interesting how you form your programs because all our audiences are sort of going blind into your own list (laughs) that you've formed. I have so much responsibility, I can't (laughs) handle it. No, I'm aware of those lists. I don't necessarily use them as an outline for any program. 
I'll be very honest that I haven't seen every freaking classic I screen here, uh, which is great because I can screen and, and, and see if I was wrong. And sometimes I am. My Fair Lady. <laughs> Deeply dated. Um, <laughs> <laughs> although I still love how it Lists are great. Other people's opinions are great. You can read up. You can check critics. You can disagree with them. You have to form your own opinions and go from there, even when making a film program, I guess. I'm, I'm going to say something that might be controversial. Oh, well, that's the first. <laughs> We're living in a time in which time itself is the biggest scarcity, right? It's that resource that we're all fighting for, in a sense. It's the thing that capitalism tries to claw out of our hands. If you're going to go to a movie that some people like, that might be critically esteemed or is part of film history, and you don't like it, and you feel like you've lost two hours of your life, you're absolutely wrong. You don't lose two hours of your life when you watch a film that you don't like. It gives you the incentive to formulate your opinions about why you don't like it. Disliking something, actively hating something, engaging with something on that level is very healthy, is very good and makes for a very formative moment in the way that you engage with culture, but also the way that you engage with time itself. I can recommend everybody to go to the cinema and see a film that they actively loathe I have done it time and time again, and it has only made my appreciation for the medium itself stronger. I'll go even a bit further coming from my standpoint as a programmer. I love programming films I hate. Actually, I'm going to say, I'm going to share a big secret about what it means to be a film critic. It means to be a time traveler, right? It's the thing that we do. Oh, but this is what I want to, this is what, this is the exact thing that I want to discuss. As a programmer, I've sometimes been very much wrong about films. Seeing them new, but also sort of my memory of them. Yeah. And that memory can... Well, the memory can change, but the interpretation of a film can change when you re-watch it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There are many times where you see a film now where you can feel and say that it might become a classic, and years later, you're wrong. Mm. The thing that I was incredibly wrong about, for instance, was Mean Girls. Yeah. When I look at that now, that is a very different film than I saw back in the day. Mm. How do you look at that? When you look at a new film, how do you judge that? What, and, what, and in the end, what does it mean for somebody else? But way before that, how, how was your experience watching Mean Girls for the first time? I thought it was just a run-of-the-mill sort of high school mm-hmm. comedy movie. I still love that film. I deeply, I'm, I'm forever indebted to my sister that we saw it when it came out because she wanted to see it, and it's a good, it's good sister cinema, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that film. But are you asking it to me in my relationship to film criticism and how yeah, you deal how with you... how you posture a film and project it into the exactly. future and how you can well, be wrong, with, you know, for a movie to change through time and i mean the thing that you always should never do in film criticism is make these silly predictions about an instant cult classic <laughs> in the making it's like well who how do i know what an instant classic in the making is no like just explore those feelings a bit more right if you have the feeling that there is something deeply powerful about that film that will speak to 
an audience yet to come. What part of the film is that that truly does that? Mm. And why don't you just focus on that part of the film itself and talk about that rather than giving those broad stroke statements that you don't even for sure know are gonna hold up? I mean, I've written my fair share of reviews that if I look back on those reviews, I don't think I would entirely agree with them anymore. Uh, a very clear example would be uh, Fatih Akin's latest film, The Golden Handshoe. Ah, yeah. Uh, a film that I very much hated when it came out because it is such an assault to the senses and also a very assault to morality, a film in which, you know, this serial killer kills all these drunk women in, I guess, Dusseldorf in Germany. <laughs> and I hated the film for being so vulgar and, 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 and awful. And it's just a bloated, messy work of serial killer cinema. Can I interrupt you for one second? <laughs> the way you said we would we would just like to apologize to the citizens of Düsseldorf for <laughs> this statement. So intense. <laughs> <laughs> so specifically throwing an entire city under the bus. <laughs> it's like they all got killed by the. <laughs> If there's anybody still left in Dusseldorf listening to this podcast right now, we're very much sorry about it. You're, you're getting a free ticket to... Women. It was that in plane in Dusseldorf. We'll give them a free Lab 111 ticket, okay? <laughs> but the thing... the I, I really had to check my kind of... I had to recheck the way that I engaged with the film on the moral level and kind of rethink if that was fair because if you perceive the film from a slightly different perspective, it's a very, very interesting contemporary take on German expressionism and it reflects in a very strange way on violence and, you know, I, I guess kind of sexual anxiety and it just it made me appreciate some of the things much more and I'm like okay I've been way too way too rough to that film mm. and that's all right I guess I mean that's also growth right I mean if everything would be fixed in a sense like the number one up on the IMDb top one or 250 list things would be very very boring but can I be uh, in that case the Keanu Reeves and Al Pacino starring film The Devil's Advocate of course um, <laughs> and say that are you then not also maybe a bit the academy? You sometimes get it wrong. Oh, shit, this is the moment where, like, <laughs> yeah, and now your Moscow moment. <laughs> this is the moment where start the orchestra. <laughs> this is the moment where you realize you're Truman and you want to be it or be, have that, you know, be fixed in that reality in a sense. I mean, I mean, we could draw up a whole sociology, right, of how the cultural industry works and everything is very much entangled and we're all, in a sense, co-dependent because us flaming the Oscars also gives us uh, <laughs> raison d'être, in a, in a sense. We're problem now. <laughs> we're, we're all perverts. <laughs> the, I mean, the thing is that as long as... I, the only thing that I can say for myself is that if I would stop engaging with all of these things very much tr as sincere as I can possibly be, 
and as frank as I can possibly be, but also always try to question why and how and just keep asking those questions, it will mean it's progress. Of course, I, I am in my own regards a mini version of the Academy like everybody else is. I mean, everybody that has a Netflix watch list of films that they yet have to see, <laughs> in a sense, is that as well. The only thing that you can do is keep critical of if why you are watching the things that you are watching, why you are not yet watching the things that you might as well be watching, and then, you know, work your way from there. And that's a highly individualistic path. And luckily, there's many, many routes that you can take. And to go back to the question, there's many voices that can guide you in that and that you can engage with because that somebody, if somebody recommends you something, it is not a mandate that you should truly see it on that note i would like to emphasize once again if because linking back to our listeners question if somebody wants to see something here or they want to show me something please do use our suggestions board online because i love the suggestions always that come in here because they also open up my mind to things i've never seen and can open up minds for other people as well yeah, I think just to conclude on that though, I think what's happening here at Lab is you're very much giving the power to the, to the audience by screening an eclectic mix of films for them to decide what they want to see in a way. And so I think that's always one thing to remember that we can always be giving people as much opportunity to see what they could see, but also to be open to seeing more. And I think on that, we're going to be talking about Nightmares and Nostalgia next episode. And it's going to be Jurassic Park by Steven Spielberg, which is going to be who? <laughs> I never heard of him. Which is going to be our film choice for the film club. Um, but otherwise, thank you very much for listening. As always, if you want to get in touch and leave a wonderful voice message like Camille did, you can contact us at Celebrating Cinema at lab111.nl or our website, celebratingcinema.com. Please make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to. And otherwise, thank you very much. <laughs>